All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I know that uh, many of you have heard me before uh, when I come into town. It's one of my favorite places to speak, and I come here often because my wife's family is from here. Uh, if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, then uh, I'll give you a little bit of background on who I am and why in the world I would be here speaking at the mill when I'm from Arkansas. I uh, actually uh, pastored at Northridge uh, Church in Marshfield. I was one of the youth pastors there for uh, about eight years, and I shouldn't say just youth pastor. I led worship for several years, and I led the college ministry, so I've done, I've done a lot of those things, had a lot of fun doing that, and about six years ago, my wife and I, a little over six years ago, my wife and I moved to Conway to start an organization called Deliver Hope, and the whole idea for us was we, we had this question in our minds of like, I wonder what it would look like if the church would actually be the church in broken and hurting places. I heard a quote one time that said, if you let your light, in order to let your light shine the brightest, you've got to go into the darkest of places. And so that's what we decided that we wanted to do. And so we started serving um, in uh, the juvenile detention centers there in central Arkansas and started building relationships with uh, the local judges, uh, administration that, that deals with juvenile justice. And what we saw was is the number of kids that were going to jail, we started seeing the statistics of the kids that were incarcerated and how they were uh, becoming uh, adult offenders as well. And so just to put it into a couple of numbers, this is not what I'm going to speak on, uh, but again, just like Rachel, I want to say thank you because you guys have supported us um, since we started. And basically what uh, what's happened. It's been a beautiful process, but we have seen the number of young people going into jail in our city drop by 57%. Um, so, I mean, that's a big deal, right? So 57% of the kids who used to go to jail no longer go to jail. That's the first thing I'll tell you. And the second thing is, in 2015, before we started our partnership with the court, there were 277 males who went to jail two or more times that year. All right, so let's put the numbers in your head. 277 males went to jail two or more times in, in that year, 2015. In 2018, uh, is, that was the year that we really uh, saw the most impact. You know, it takes a long time to see uh, impact, especially when you're dealing with kids that are, uh, you know, in the, in the really tough environments. And what we saw was, so 277, 2015, 2018, there were only seven who went to jail two or more times, right? So let me put this into stats for you. That's a 98% decrease in the number of kids going back to jail in our city. Uh, and so now, uh, currently what I'm working on is working with the governor of Arkansas and certain judges to implement our program throughout the entire state and hopefully to go nationwide. Because what we figured out is uh, this is the community partnership is what really works in community. And so it's a big deal. I'm really excited. And so thank you for your support. Uh, and what's interesting about that, though, is I tell those stories, and it really is fun, and, and I like to brag about it um, because I know the impact. But one day somebody asked me, um, what does it feel like to run something like this? You know, to like you start something out of, the, out of nothing, and you see this thing happen. And, and I had this, like, moment of this huge moment for me that was just like, man, I just feel thankful um, get emotional thinking about it because, you know, I'm in the city where I used to live as, as a young person and my parents were, were crystal meth addicts and I went to the jail that I serve uh, kids in. So the, the, I sit on the beds that I slept on when I was a kid sharing the gospel with kids that are sleeping on the same beds that I slept on when I was a kid. Um, so I'm just grateful. That's all. Uh, and so, so the question I have for you this morning and what I kind of want to talk about is like, like who's the hero in your story? When you think about your life and, and where you are now, like who's the, 
Who's the hero in your story? I'm going to share a, a very famous Bible uh, passage with you this morning. It won't be a surprise to you when I, when I say what it is. Probably the most famous Bible passage, especially in the, in the Old Testament. And what's interesting, though, is so many people read this passage in, in, the, in a different light than I think it was meant to be interpreted. And, and, and I'll tell it to you like, like this. Some people, their hero like is maybe their dad. Uh, or sometimes maybe your hero is, is a mentor in your life. And, and sometimes, and, and, and be honest with you, if you can't think of a hero, <laughs> then odds are you might be the hero of your own story. Um, and so what I'm going to ask you to do is turn to your Bibles in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you, already, if you know much about Scripture, you'll know that this story is about this, this young shepherd boy who kills this Goliath, right? And it's a story that if, even if you've never been, if this is your first time into church, you've probably heard that story at, at some point. Uh, and so what I want to do is I, I want to walk through this story, and I think will be uh, life-giving uh, to you um, as, as we study this story a little bit more. So like I said, if you've been in church at all, you've heard this preached before. And what can happen sometimes with this particular story is that it kind of turns into like an inspiration speech. It's kind of like this Tony Robbins of the Bible. And so if you try hard enough, right, if you throw that rock hard enough, you can overcome that giant in your life, right? And you can, you know, you, you kind of walk out going, yeah, I'm David, you know, I'm strong and I'm, I'm courageous. But what I'd like to propose today is that it's possible that we've misread the story of David and Goliath. Um, it actually may not be a story about human grit and determination. In fact, it may not be about us at all. The story may be just about how good Jesus is. And so you may say, well, how in the world does the story of David and Goliath fit with the story of Jesus? That was years and years ago, and I'll, I want to walk through this a little bit this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 17. Here's what's interesting, right? At this moment in the history of Israel, these, these Israelites find themselves in this military battle. Uh, with the Philistines, right? They're in the valley, and on one side of the valley, you've got the Philistines. On the other side, you've got the Israelites, and the, and the Philistines are, are, are this like traveling band of pirates. They're always messing with Israel. They're kind of like the hangnail that never goes away. You know what I mean? I mean, they're just annoying, always there, kind of fighting, trying to bugging, is, bugging Israel, and, and, and so they find themselves in this valley, in this military standoff, ready to fight a battle, and then in verse 4, you, you, you know the story. It says that they came out from the camp of, Philistine, or of the Philistines, a a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, and, and he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin, javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his uh, shield bearer went before him. And so this Goliath, man, he's huge, right? I mean, this is a huge guy. He's about nine feet tall. He's wearing about 120 pounds of metal, and he's just, I mean, just a, a, a huge man, right? And comes out this behemoth of a man dressed in all metal, looking like RoboCop, and he starts yelling at the other side. He says, look, enough of this whole thing where my army fights your army. You know, we clash in the middle. You send your best and I'll fight him, and whoever wins, then the loser will become our servants. And so he says one-on-one, -on -one, right? Mano y mano, right here in the valley. It's going to be like a representative battle instead of everybody fighting together. It's going to be this representative and in verse 16, it says that for 40 days and for 40 nights, Goliath came out and he taunted them and he, assault, he insulted them, he defied them. And this is going on over and over and over again. Now, in the meantime, we've got David. And David was not on the battlefield, right? When, when David was set apart to be king, he was still very young. He was, he was still a teenager. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't in the army yet. He wasn't old enough yet. 
but his brothers were. And so David's role was that he had to stay home and help his dad, Jesse, tend the sheep. And then every once in a while, Jesse would send David to his brothers to bring snacks. And then he was supposed to bring back reports to this nervous dad whose sons were at war about how it was going. And you can imagine how that would feel. And this is a classic little brother role, right? His brothers get to fight in this cool battle, and he's bringing them orange slices and Capri Suns. You know I mean? Like, this is what it feels like. That's his role. And there's this one day where he comes, and, and, he, and he gets to Goliath, and he yells, and, and Goliath comes out, and he yells, and he taunts, and David's there, and he's got his snacks, probably helping his brothers with the straws and the Capri Suns, and it's like super confusing. And so he's got that going on. And so here comes Goliath, and he says, I defy you. And it's amazing that the soldiers did on, the same, on that same day, this, they had the same response that they've had previous. They were just terrified. But the one person in the entire camp who sees it dif- differently is this young shepherd king, or this young shepherd kid who, who was there with, with snacks. And watch how David sees this. Watch the questions that he asks in verse 26. It says, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for this man who kills the Philistine and, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Check this out, right? The rest of the soldiers for 40 days and 40 nights had seen the same man say the same words and challenge them in the same way that they've had every single time. And it was fear. They were terrified. David, on the other hand, sees Goliath in a very different light. You see, David realized that because of Goliath's trash talk that he had changed the game. You see, Goliath's trash talk changed the battle from physical to theological, and when Goliath was coming out to, into the valley and yelling at the army of God, he was not saying, hey, I'm nine feet tall and I'm clothed in metal. I'm a trained warrior. I can beat you up. He was saying, I defy your God. And that was a very dangerous thing to do. You see, Goliath didn't realize that even though he was tall and even though he was strong, that he had nothing up against God. And we know that, right? I love what one commentator wrote about this. He said, this may have been the very first time that David had ever heard anyone insult God. If you think about it, David was young and he grew up in a God-fearing home around a God-fearing dad and God-fearing brothers. And so for the first time, he may have been encountering someone who was insulting God and he was just like, well, you can't do that. You can't defy my God. He was like frustrated and angry that someone would talk about his God this way. And so he knew that no matter how big Goliath was, God was on his side and he could do it. And so here's the question that this poses for you and me today. When we're called by God to do something, how do we see our challenge? When you're called, when you're asked by God to do something, how do you see that challenge? Because here's the deal. All of us have been called to do something, right? In your life, whether you're an accountant or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom or uh, a, a, a farmer, it doesn't matter. All of us have been saved from something for something. And, and, but what happens is often we feel called by God to do something and we assume that he called us because he needs us. Like God called me to do this thing. He called me to this action. He called me to this relationship. He called me to this behavior because he needs my unique skill set or my experience or my resume or no one else could possibly do this. That's why he called me. And I, I hate to break it to you, but that's not why he's called you. He's actually called you because he wanted, us, he wanted you to see the problem differently. He didn't call you because of your skill set. He called you because he wants to use you, much like he called this young shepherd boy to the battlefield. I remember when we first started Deliver Hope, and we moved to, we'd moved to Conway. We'd given up everything, you know, gave up our jobs and trusted that God would provide. And, and there was no ministry to, like, go to. It was just, like, literally we packed up our stuff, moved to Arkansas, and we're like, man, I hope this works. 
you know, I'm the one who needed some hope, but I was, you know, trusting that, this, that what we were going to do was going to make a difference, and I remember pulling up at the jail where I wanted to share the gospel. We weren't, we weren't even invited to share the gospel with kids in the jail yet, so like, this hasn't happened. We're just there in the town trying to, trying to get started, and so I pull up at the jail, and I, I'll never forget, I parked in the parking lot, and I was looking at the jail, and I said, and I was, I mean, faith, right? I mean, I was crying, I was trusting with faith, you know? It's like, God, I just pray for favor for Deliver Hope, and I just pray that you would help us reach, a, you know, 100 kids, you know, I'm just going on these all things, I don't know what all I was praying, but I just remember saying, I trust that you're going to, and all I heard is this moment, it was like this silent thing, and I don't know if you've ever heard those moments where God speaks to your soul, but it was one of those days for me, and God said, I don't care about your ministry. Care about my name. And my prayer started changing from would you build up my ministry to God, would you help me to glorify your name? Would you just help me lift up your name in the kids who need it the most? And see, what I realized was God didn't call me because of my skills, He called me because He wanted to use me. God didn't call David to the battlefield because he was a trained warrior, because he had some trick that he could kill the giant. He called David to the battlefield because he knew that he would see the challenge differently. And so it's possible that God right now has you unsettled and maybe even a little bit off your rocker and you're off balance and you're not quite sure why. Let me ask you a question. What have you been avoiding? You know what it is, right? It's that thing that you know that God is asking you to do, but you're not really ready for it yet. You know that God is doing something in your soul, but man, you, you're scared to try to pull it off because you think, man, I wish I could, but man, I don't, know that I, I don't know that I can do it, right? And so listen, God doesn't call you to these actions. God doesn't call you to relationships. God doesn't call you to these behaviors because of what you can provide. God called you because he wants to use you. And so how are you gonna see the challenge? Are you gonna see the challenge like the soldiers who said, because I can't, I won't? Or are you gonna see the challenge like David who said, because God called me, I can, and he can use me in a very real way. So let me, sh- let me shed a little light on this. When we started Deliver Hope, again, it was one of those deals where I started sharing the gospel with kids in jail, but then I realized that the gospel in, in jail was, was one thing. It was a whole nother thing to try to change the entire justice system. But I don't have any I mean, I was a kid who, you know, from a meth home, and I was in the same jail. Like, how am I supposed to change the justice system? Who am I going to talk to? These guys aren't going to listen to me. I don't have any education in that area. I've been studying the Bible for 12 years. So how am I supposed to speak to judges about, about the justice system? And then all of a sudden, now I'm in the, in the middle of conversations with the governor of Arkansas talking about how to make juvenile justice reform happen around our entire state. It's beautiful, right? And so, and, and again, it kind of goes back to these things. Listen, David sees the problem very differently uh, in this, in this, than the rest of the Israelites, and he says, look, who is this guy? Does he even know who he's talking to? He's talking to the armies of the living God. There's no way that he could do that, right? And so word gets around the camp that there's someone crazy enough to actually fight Goliath, and so Saul, the, the king and the leader of the army, he's been hearing these taunts for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's worn down, he's discouraged, he's defeated, and so he says, I'll take anyone at this point, and so he brings David in, and David comes to Saul, and Saul starts asking some pretty logical questions, like, uh, you're a young child, like, how are you going to defeat RoboCop, right? Why in the world do you think this is going to work out? And I love David's explanation. It's simple and it's clear. And it's also, but it's like almost so simple that it's laughable until you sit back and realize that God loves to use the laughable. 
You know, he loves to use the, the least likely. And David explains it like this. He said, Saul, I'm a shepherd, and my main job as a shepherd is to protect the sheep. That's my main job, right? Number one job description, protect the sheep. That's the top of the list, right? And there was this day when I was protecting the sheep, and a lion came and stole one of the sheep. And so I went after him, and God delivered me from the lion. I killed the lion to protect the sheep. And on another day, the, a bear stole, stole a sheep, and so I went and I did the same thing. I went after him, and God delivered me from that bear, and I killed the bear to protect the sheep. Seriously, this is a real thing. Like, I love this. I love the way that David describes the story. It reveals his true character. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, uh, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Man, I love this part of the story. I love how beautifully simple it is that all David is saying is, look how God delivered me once. He delivered me twice and he's not going to bail on me now. I have faith that God is going to be faithful to me just like he's been all of my life. It just seems so simple, but it's almost like, it's like almost silly. But I want to tell you something. We suffer, us Christians, for those of us who claim Christ as our savior, we suffer from a disease. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not. It's called spiritual amnesia. Right, and we, 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 it kills us sometimes. And, and I'll, I'll kind of describe the, the pattern for you. This is—I don't see if it resonates with your life. Here's, here's kind of the way it goes in mine: a problem arises, a challenge arises, and my very first response is to fix it. Right? I want to fix it. That's my—that's my first response. Anybody in here a fixer? Anybody? Fi- any, okay, yeah, everybody. Uh, and so, so you know, you, you get—you kind of jump into fix-it mode. Well, I'm a fixer, and, I, and so I have to come up with a plan. I come up with a strategy, and so my first thing is that I have to make this list of pros and cons and figure out how I'm going to attack the whole deal, and then I run out of options, and I can't figure it out, and ultimately this thing of clarity pops in. I'm like, oh, I haven't even prayed about this. Maybe I should pray about it. Maybe God's got some wisdom for me, and so then I pray about it, and I'm like, oh, that's the thing I've been missing. Cool, and so I run after it, right, and then God gives me this delivery from this challenge that I've had, and then what happens? A challenge arises, and so I make my list of pros and cons, and I do the exact same thing that I did previously. Anybody else with me? Right? And then amazingly, what God does is he says, here's the thing you've been missing again and again and again, right? And I don't mean to make light of the fact that there are some very big burdens in this room. I get it. Right? And I, and I know that we look good, and I know that we smile, and I know that we sing along, and I know that we can kind of seem like we have it all put together. But there's some real hurt within the people that are not only in this room, but in our world as we walk around at this moment. And so I don't mean to trivialize the fact that it hurts and you're scared or maybe you're insecure about what future looks like, but I promise you that if God has come through for you before, he will come through for you again. I remember when we started Deliver Hope, um, I had $20,000 in the bank. I had saved up my wife and I when we were living here in Marshfield. And we had saved and saved and saved and saved. We went Dave Ramsey style. I had $20,000 in the bank and, and we moved to Conway to start Deliver Hope. And I was hoping that 20000 would last a little while. Well, as you know, if you have a family, $20,000 doesn't get you very far anymore. And so I take the 20000 and I'm trusting that maybe by the time I run out of that $20,000, i will have enough support to get this ministry going so I can feed my family. Well, that 20000 went away pretty fast. And I remember sitting in the living room with my wife, or at the ki- we were sitting in the living room, and we went and sat at the kitchen table, and we were, like, putting all the money together, and I was showing her, and my wife's one of the most incredible people in the world because she, like, trusted me to go down to Arkansas and trusted me to provide for our family in the middle of all this, right? I had no promise of anything. She came with me and trusted that God was going to provide. And we're sitting at the kitchen table, and I'm like, babe, I, I think I screwed up. Maybe I missed what God was calling me to do because we were out of money. And 
I don't know if, I don't know if we could do this. I don't think it's going to work. So I'm going to go get a job, you go get a job, and then I'll start looking for a church where I can go be a youth pastor again or something, and maybe, maybe we can get, get back healthy here or something, you know. And, and so we prayed, which was the first time that we prayed for finances, by the way. And we prayed that night, and I held my wife's hands, and I felt like the worst husband in the world. And then 15 minutes later, somebody knocked on our door. And I went and answered the door, and it was a man that I knew from my past who should not have been there, who should not have ever cared for me. And he said to me, Daniel, when, God, when I found out that you were moving to Conway to start this ministry, God spoke to my heart and told me to give you a certain amount of money. But what he told me to give you, I couldn't afford. So I went and asked my boss for my bonus early. Here's $5,000. And I was just like, oh, you know, and started crying, just praising God. And he said, that's not the end of the story. When I went and asked my boss for my bonus early, she wanted to know why. And so I told her your story and why you're here. And she matched it. Here's another 5000 And it was that moment where I thought, okay, I'm in. I'm, he, he's, he's never let me down before. Why would I not believe that he's not going to let me down again? He never, it's, it's like this continual thing. Listen, Saul hears David's confidence when he says, hey, God's done this before. He's not going to let me down now, right? And he hears this confidence. He says, okay, man, it's all yours. And so Saul offers him his army. And if you again, you know the story and he says, no, or the armor. And he says, no, man, I don't need this, I don't need this armor. And so he walks into this valley. I, pro, I promise you with a staff, five rocks and a sling. And this, kid, this teenage kid faces a robocop of a warrior with a staff, five rocks and a sling. It's laughable, but like I said, God loves to use the, the laughable. Watch how Goliath responds. His arrogance is predictable. It says this in verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Notice little g, unnamed gods, multiple. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And I just want to warn you what David's about to say next is the coolest thing ever. Some people say the Bible is boring. Not sure how, but this is incredible. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God, capital G, one God in Israel, singular name God, and that all of this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So first of all, right, Braveheart and Gladiator have nothing on this, right? I mean, this is like I would run through a wall for David in this moment, right? Uh, and this is crazy, right? Turn to your neighbor and punch him in the arm. No, don't do that. I mean, this is like one of those things I was like, ah, yes, right? I love this. There's two types of courage in the valley that day. There's Goliath courage and there's David courage. You know what Goliath courage is, right? And a lot of us try to walk through that where we're proud of ourselves. We find confidence from within, right? Goliath was physically imposing. He, he was undefeated, right? He, he, he had this feeling that he's probably never been told no before. I'm, you know, no, Goliath, you can't have more soup. You know, I mean, like, yeah, you can have more soup. I'm scared to death of you, right? He had the best technology and the best resources and the most self-confidence. Goliath found courage from within, but David, he was different, man. David's courage came from his identity. And that's wildly different. David didn't know that, that he was going to win because he was bigger, because he was stronger, or because he, he was better trained. David didn't know that he was going to win because of himself. He knew that he was going to win because he was a child of God and that God had his back, that God had given him some very clear promises. And God had given his people some very clear promises, promises like, I will fight for you. And so David found his courage because of who he was in the eyes of God, not because of what he could do. 
And so here's the question for me and you. Where do you find your strength? Where do you find your strength? Because if you're listening to the world, the world has a very clear message that if you dig down deep enough in yourself, if you have enough power, if you have enough courage, if you have enough intelligence, then you can figure this out because you are innately good and you are innately strong. And so you have to just believe in yourself and you can overcome any kind of challenge and any kind of battle. It's like the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. You know, and, and we have this idea. The problem with that message is that for thousands of years, it's been disappointing millions of people. Because millions have, have tried this game that I can live my own life and I can figure out the solutions and I'm independent, right? I don't need anyone else. Jesus is a crutch. But here's the problem. You and I, listen, are broken and we are flawed and we are sinful. And if you're really, really honest with yourself, you know this from your past because you've tried and you've failed. And some of you know this from today because you're currently in a mode of trying to do this on your own and it is not working. You see, one of the worst things that you and I can do when we read the story of David and Goliath is put ourselves in the shoes of this hero. A lot of times this is what happens when you get this halftime motivational speech. This is who you are. You're David, right? Just fling that rock hard enough. But you know who we are in the story of David and Goliath? We're the scared Israelites. That's who we are. We're the Israelite soldiers on the field. We're the ones who heard the challenge for 40 days and 40 nights and we did not respond and we are scared and we don't have the answers and we assume that it's our responsibility to come up with a plan to win the battle. That's who we are. We need someone else to fight for us, right? And here's the good news. Don't miss this. Someone has, someone has. You see, there's this battle going on right now for our souls, for the kids' souls that we fight for every day. There's this battle going on right now that we cannot win and someone else has to fight it for us. And the beauty and the good news is that someone has, that God has fought our battle. And David steps out of the valley and he comes with this sling and he tosses that one rock and, and, and he hits Goliath in the head and it knocks him out cold to the ground. And David grabs Goliath's sword and he cuts off his head just like he said he would. And David won this battle. But more importantly, what you and I know now is that David did not slay the giant. God did. God used the least likely of all the warriors to defeat this giant who no one else was willing to fight. David did not take credit for this, much like he didn't take credit for the lion and the bear. He said, God delivered Goliath into my hands. And this is going to sound a little tricky, even, even uh, as, as we talk about people in the, anytime you talk about people in the Old Testament, especially somebody like David, that even David is not the main character in his story. Jesus is. You may be saying, how is Jesus in David's story? Let me show you. What the world does, you know, with David, you know, how, do, how, does, how does this all fit together? Listen, David didn't show up to the battlefield so that he could train all the warriors on how to be more effective warriors. He didn't conduct some kind of seminar on how to be a samurai and how to effectively wipe out the Philistines. That was not David's job. David's job was to step out of the valley by himself with the entire weight of responsibility of the army. Listen, his victory would be their victory. This is beautiful. He didn't come to be an example. He came to save the army and fight the problem. And the same is true of Jesus. When God was dealing with the sin problem, he didn't send an example. He, Jesus did not come down to be our moral life coach who could provide some goal-oriented plan so that we could live a life that would honor God and he wouldn't be mad at us. No, that, that's not, that wasn't Jesus' plan. You see, there was a sin problem. And there was a sin battle that you and I could not fight, that we could not win. And so Jesus fought it for us and he was victorious. And so he took the punishment that we deserve and in turn gave us a reward that only he could earn. And listen, his victory would be our victory. 
God didn't send an example. He sent a Savior, and his name is Jesus. But the second way that David and Goliath are like Jesus is this. God uses foolish methods. Right? God loves using foolish methods. Like I said before, God's really into using the least likely approach. You see, he used this stuttering shepherd to be a spokesperson in Egypt. His name is Moses. He used a Persian cupbearer to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. His name is Nehemiah. He used a Jericho prostitute to save the lives of Israelite spies. Her name was Rahab. He used a teenage girl to give birth to his son. Her name was Mary. He used a legalistic Pharisee to plant churches all over the first century. And his name was Paul. He used an ill-equipped shepherd to defeat Goliath. His name was David. And then he used a cross to save us. You see, the cross is foolish. Paul says it in the New Testament over and over again that the cross is foolish. It was a tool of capital punishment. The cross was a sign of defeat that God redeemed to be a sign of victory. And here's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the ones who boast, boast in the Lord. And so there's no room for pride and arrogance at the foot of the cross because the cross says that we couldn't save ourselves, that we were completely dependent upon Jesus. And because of that gift of grace, now we live as a response to it. And so let me ask you this question again. What have you been avoiding? What's that thing that you know that God is asking you to do, that right thing? And genuinely, in a perfect world, you want to do it because you're convinced to yourself that, 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 that it's the right thing, but you just can't. You can't, you can't get yourself there. What's that one thing? Today's the day that we no longer shuffle our feet. God loves to use the weak and the foolish. Let me give you one last example and we'll close. Most of you know the story, um, I think. In 2009, there was a murder here in Stratford. It was March the 14th, 2009. And that murder that was in Stratford was just two or three blocks over. And that was my mom. And I, I'll never forget standing in the, um, the hospital and watching my mom hooked up to, those, to all these different wires and sitting in that, laying in that hospital bed and the doctor's telling me she's not going to make it. I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget holding her hand for the last time when they told me that they were going to unplug it. I'll never forget it. But I'll also never forget when God spoke to me that the guy who killed my mom deserved his grace just as much as I do. And I'll never forget the day that I sat with that guy in, in Northridge Church Sanctuary and I held those same hands that killed my mom so that he'd give his life to Christ and he'll spend eternity in heaven with her. And so I've told you some things about my life and for some of you know a little bit more, but I, I've been through a lot of suffering and a lot of pain and just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Dallas, Texas. I was speaking to 4,000 teenagers about the grace of Jesus in my life. It was crazy. 
but I was sharing, all I was doing was sharing my testimony, just the, the, the life that I grew up in, God changing my life, my mom's death, all that, you know, sharing, sharing that testimony. It's 25 minutes, right? And this, this place that I was speaking, they put me up in this, in this, uh, in the thing called the Gaylord Texan. Never been there before, but it's the most beautiful resort that I've ever, that I've ever experienced. So, I mean, huge resort, huge. They had water parks and everything inside this resort. And so, I, I show up there to speak and to share my story, talk about my home, home life as a kid, talk about my mom's death, and talk about some of the suffering that I I've been through and how Jesus has redeemed all that. And I, I get back to the, um, uh, we're in the water park the next day with my wife. I'm sitting on the, on the, uh, with my feet in the water, sitting next to my wife, just enjoying this beautiful day. And my kids are splashing around in the water. And I had this moment and I just thought, oh, look at this. Look what we're enjoying right now. The only reason that we're here right now is because of the suffering that I experienced as a kid. Isn't that beautiful? Had I not gone through that pain, had I not gone through that hardship, I would not be here today being able to even share with you the story that God uses the things that we think in the world are weak or foolish. He uses that to shame the world so that he could get the glory that only he deserves so that when we boast, we boast in the Lord. It's beautiful. And so today is the day where we stop Shuffling our feet. Today's the day when we embrace our identity and have the courage to take that step of faith. Because listen, we were the Israelite army standing on the sidelines. And we needed a savior to come fight for us, to be a representative for us. And, and he did. And his name is Jesus. And so if you're in Christ today, there is no more condemnation for you. You have new identity. And you can walk in that identity in whatever it is that God has called you to. Let me pray for us today. Father, we love you. Um, so much. And we're so grateful for uh, your word. We're thankful for how every story points back to Jesus. We're thankful, God, that you have a, a plan for our lives that it's not so that we can, not because of skills that we have, but because you want to use us to make a difference in your kingdom. So I just pray that there would be boldness that would come out of this, out of this room right now. God, that you would deal with the, the broken pieces of our hearts, the, the pain that we experience, the, the frustrations that we're sitting in. And ultimately, God, I pray that you would um, remind us that someone's fought for us, that we could step off of the sidelines and we could be bold and we, can, we could do those things that we've been called to do. And so we trust you with that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.